Hello, hello, my name is Bird and I'm the Ex-Mormon Witch. Welcome to my space where I share my story and explore subjects I'm interested in. Fair warning before I get into this, um, I feel good. I feel really good right now. I finally feel okay. I'm coming up out of a really bad downward slump. I feel great and I... I want you to buckle up because if you want to stick around for this one, you're in for a rant. I have already decided I'm not going to be nice in this one. I feel really comfortable in myself making room for contradictions. And usually in a lot of these episodes, I've tried really, really hard to be nice, to be kind and empathetic in everything that I've talked about, especially towards individual people, individual members, things like that. Um, I really feel like I've pulled some punches instead of going as hard as I could. I'm not going to do that today. (laughs) I have some thoughts. I've been thinking about this particular conversation for a while, and I think the best way this is going to play is for me to not play nice. And to just be really, really honest and let the other side of the truth out today. Because the other side of the truth is there's some really ugly things that happen around the Mormon church. I want to talk today about why the Mormons are the bad guys. One of the last conversations I had with both of my parents about religion before my dad passed away, was in a family therapy session where I wanted to dig in and hash out some of the problems that I felt existed in our relationship, part of which was about religion, because I really felt like I was incredibly isolated from my my whole family, but particularly specifically my parents, because of our religious differences. I felt like I wasn't being actively supported or even really accepted. And so we dug into it. And what eventually it boiled down to was my mom telling me very honestly and very vulnerably, and I may have discussed this in another episode already before, but she told me straight up that she would always love me and always accept me, but that my parents could not support me because there were things about specifically my religion, my spirituality, that are evil. I practice witchcraft as a form of spirituality, which from a faithful believing Mormon perspective is evil. It's demonic. And I really took some time to sit with that because first I I really need to process a lot of my emotions. and, And then we got into the actual thoughts and I felt a lot of anger in that moment after I I got through a lot of my conflicted feelings, um, my love for her, the love that I definitely felt from her in that moment. But I definitely felt a certain degree of anger and hurt and resentment. And what finally it boiled down to for me was that I don't feel that my spirituality is really all that evil But I do see problems with her spirituality. Now, I would not call the Mormon church evil. The word evil is very dramatic. It's very 
storybook. It's very theatrical. It's it's a lot. It's a lot to use the word evil to describe something, right? But stories are useful and they can sometimes help simplify things and draw great parallels. So I want to tell a little bit of a story for those of you who are not Mormon, have never been Mormon, and maybe are not familiar with the stories that I grew up with. Stories from the Book of Mormon, the book that the Mormons believe is the most correct book in existence. Mormons do believe that the Book of Mormon is more correct, more accurate, more reliable even than the Bible. They do believe that the Bible is correct, but they add the caveat of as far as it's translated correctly, whereas they believe that the Book of Mormon was, of course, translated correctly. It was direct from God to Joseph Smith to paper. And so I I don't think it's fair to judge the Mormon church by my standards, because standards of ethics and morality can be quite different across cultures and people. So let's talk about the Mormons story. Let's judge the Mormon church by their standards. And maybe at the end, I'll offer some alternative adjectives that I think are quite accurate to describe the negative side of the Mormon church without being quite so dramatic and theatrical as evil, right? So to provide some context for this story, for those of you who have no idea what's in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon starts with this family of Jews who leave Jerusalem and sail across the ocean to America, whereupon they split into two groups, the Nephites and the Lamanites. Now, through most of the book, the Nephites, who are described as white and delightsome, are the good guys. They're righteous. They mostly do what they're supposed to. Most of the prophets in the Book of Mormon are Nephites. Most of the good Christian people are these white and delightsome Nephites. Now, the Lamanites in the very, very beginning of the book are cursed because of their evilness with dark skin to make them ugly and undesirable. And they're cursed because of their evilness and their wickedness and We're not going to go into the racism of all of that because we really just don't have time, but do feel free to pause if you need to take a breath just to process that that is in the book that Mormons believe is the most correct book in existence. Moving right along, (laughs) well, for the majority of the book, the Nephites are considered the good guys and the Lamanites are the bad guys. One of the ongoing themes of this book, because it does follow themes and patterns as you move through the narrative, one of the ongoing themes is this cycle that happens among these people, the Nephites and the Lamanites both, where pride and arrogance leads them to evilness and wickedness, and then God sort of smites them and does something to force them into humility And then in humility, they find, you know, salvation and goodness and righteousness. And they remember to listen to God and follow the commandments and do all the good things. And then inevitably, because they're righteous, God blesses them with prosperity, which causes them to become arrogant again and and on and on and on. 
And it does go sort of back and forth. There are parts in the book where the Lamanites, as loathsome and dark-skinned as they are, shudders, um, the Lamanites are the more righteous of the two groups, and the Nephites are more wicked. So sort of, I guess, maybe halfway through the book, maybe a little bit further, there is this group that's introduced in the Nephite world, in this culture that exists, that sort of defines evilness as it happens in the Nephites of this time. They're referred to as the Gadianton robbers, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of how they start, because it's a theme that continues. These Gadianton robbers and what they represent and what they do comes back multiple times over the course of the narrative, and it plays a really significant role. These are the bad guys, not just in the way that the Lamanites are bad, because the Lamanites are bad because they're dirty and savage and uncivilized and violent. The Gadianton robbers are bad in a different way, in a more subtle, refined, one could even say evil way. The Gadianton robbers are a group of powerful men within Nephite society who bond together and they form this secret group, this super secret brotherhood, and they swear blood oaths of fealty. And they have these secret signs that they use to identify each other so that they know who's in the group, but no one else knows. And they use this organization to do terrible, terrible things. They use all of these secret signs and passwords and the power of these groups to commit and get away with crimes like murder, assassinations. They manipulate governments and officials, and they affect the laws of the land. They commit theft. They manipulate things for their own personal gain. They do some really, really terrible things. And every time the Gadianton robbers are dragged into the light and sort of eradicated, eventually they come back. They're like an infestation of cockroaches. You just can't get rid of them, these evil, evil Gadianton robbers. And this is, I think, very significant because if you take Mormon theology at face value with what Mormons believe, the Book of Mormon is not just a collection of stories. It is a very important book for our day. It is specifically meant for the people who are living right now, meaning any time after the mid-1800s when it was published. It is supposed to contain things that we need for our lives. And so this warning that sort of exists, pointing out these secret organizations, this must have some significance. All of the evil things that they do and the ways that they go about doing them must have some sort of significance. And so this is why you'll see a lot of Mormons who are really, really open to a lot of conspiracy theories, who are quite suspicious of things like secret organizations and cults and et cetera, et cetera. But I would like to argue, just for the sake of argument, that the Mormon church is the Gadianton robbers. And I know if you are a faithful, believing Mormon, I just lost you. But if you have it in you, stay with me here. What defines the Gadianton robbers? Their secret organization with their secret signs and passwords and ways of identifying each other that no one else really knows, this little in-group, this fancy club, who commits terrible, terrible acts like murder, 
manipulation, affecting the laws of the land for their own benefit, theft for personal gain. They exploit people and systems. So where does the Mormon church come into this? Well, I am going to argue that it starts with the temple. The temple, for me at least, is the biggest and first indicator that I had that the Mormons were the Gadianton robbers. If you're not super familiar with the Mormon temple and specifically the Mormon temple ceremony, I highly recommend that you research it and not only from approved LDS sources, although definitely look at those, but actually from people who will tell you what happens because the Mormons are really, really big about keeping everything about the temples super top secret all while saying that it's not really a secret, it's just very, very sacred. There is an individual who's a great resource for this. If you go on YouTube, there's a YouTube channel called New Name Noah, and there's a man named Mike Norton who has gone out of his way to get videos of everything that happens in the Mormon temple. And a lot of people, a lot of faithful, believing Mormons going through the temple, when they hit the weird part, which is the, the the really, really weird stuff happens during the endowment, which if you're not familiar, honestly, just go look it up. And this is the part where faithful believing Mormons who are going through to get their endowments get weirded out. And a lot of times the story that you'll hear people say is, I suddenly had this moment where I thought, oh my God, this is a cult. I'm in a cult. This is a cult. And what I think is important to understand here is these are not people like me. These are when the first time I saw the video of the Mormon temple ceremony, I had been out of the church for a while. I would never as a believing Mormon have gone and sought those things out. So by the time I saw it, I was already predisposed to not be down for what was happening right? I definitely had an implicit bias. But we're talking about people whose entire lives are focused towards the church. You have to be a really dedicated member to ever get anywhere near that temple ceremony. You have to be a member with a great attendance record for a full year. You have to attend all of your meetings. You have to spend a whopping 10% of your income every single paycheck. 10% of every dime you make goes to the church for a minimum of a full year. You have to be following all the rules, all of the dietary prohibitions, all of the clothing guidelines, language, media, who you associate with, how many piercings you're allowed to have, all of these things, all of these hoops you have to jump through. You have to be very dedicated as a member of the church to get all the way to this temple ceremony, this super secret temple ceremony of the endowment. And those people who have invested that level of time and commitment look at this ceremony and go, oh God, I think this is a cult. The short version is, is that there are a lot of secret signs and handshakes that happen in the Mormon temple. A lot of really culty things happen. There's a whole wardrobe and whole getup and all of these secret signs and tokens. And it's very, very much deeply connected to other secret fraternal organizations like the Masons. In fact, it draws almost directly from the Masonic rituals because Joseph Smith was a Freemason. 
for a very, 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 very long time. Not only were there these secret signs and tokens, but there were serious penalties given in the ceremony for revealing them. Individuals would mime and state the various ways that their bodies could be broken and tormented and destroyed if they ever revealed the secret signs and tokens given to them in the temple. And even though that is no longer the case and they have phased out the penalties because honestly it was freaking people out, the whole ceremony is still incredibly unsettling. Like the version that I saw didn't have those penalties in it. And still, I had this shelf-breaking moment, this moment of shattering realization. And mine was not, this is a cult, but it was verbatim, these words, oh my God, we're the Gadianton robbers. The Mormon church is the Gadianton robbers. We're the ones with a super secret club full of signs and handshakes and secret tokens and secret passwords and new names that we're getting and giving to each other. Like this is the framework that I was given as a kid with these stories that are supposed to shape my understanding of goodness and morality. We're, we're the bad guys. And this whole idea about secret groups and secret organizations, it goes to a whole other level when you hear about the second anointing, which also happens in the temple. It's like a secret club inside of the secret club for the very, very high up elite members, wherein people can have their salvation essentially assured. Once you've received the second anointing, there's nothing really that you can do as far as sins go in order to lose your eternal salvation, which I don't know if you really want to take a deep breath and step back and think about all of the horrible, terrible ways that that could go wrong the ways that people might behave if their whole lives, the only thing keeping them from doing something bad was that they didn't want to be punished by God. And then you just gave them permission to do whatever they wanted, because no matter what sins they commit, God is not going to punish them. Let's not think about all of the ways that that might go wrong. No, 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 no. Let's just move on. Let's move on from secret signs and tokens and handshakes and move on to murder. Now, the Mormon church isn't really into murder anymore. Uh, in the early church, definitely, 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 definitely into the murder. The early church was quite violent. There was a lot of racism as a motivator for violence. Early church leaders declaring that interracial marriage was a sin that should be punished with death. The whole understanding of um, something called blood atonement, which is basically this idea that was taught by the Mormon prophet Brigham Young, that there were certain sins that could not be atoned for by the individual. The individual who committed the sin could not be forgiven unless they were killed violently. That was the only way for them to atone. The Mormon church has definitely stepped away from that, much like they've stepped away from the penalties in the temple. They're actually slowly over time becoming less like the Gadianton robbers and a little bit better. They're still kind of awful, though, because now when the church comes to, you know, ending people's lives, it's usually through negligence, neglect, and abusing and marginalizing, you know, groups like queer people. It's in advocating for conversion therapy, shock therapy, 
pressuring people into lives where they are not and cannot be happy, driving people through policies, procedures, language, general everyday treatment, all the way up to the brink and sometimes passed into death. And even if that is not advocating outright for violence, the Mormon church is, in my opinion, very much responsible for a lot of suffering and a lot of death. And in terms of of negligence, I'll get into that a little bit later, but I would say that the Mormon church definitely still has blood on their hands, definitely because they refuse to own up to their mistakes, like the November policy, which led to a huge spike in queer suicides. I've definitely talked about that before. A lot of other people have talked about that. If you literally just Google Mormon Church November policy, gay people, you'll find it. So let's move on from murder. We've established that the Mormon Church isn't real bad about the murder. Uh, Let's go into manipulating governments and government officials and affecting laws. Uh, The really most obvious point that might come to mind is they're outright advocating and pushing and advertising for certain laws and certain things like Proposition 8. The Mormon Church was very heavily invested in Proposition 8, invested money and time and encouraged the members to invest money and time into Proposition 8, stopping the legalization of gay marriage. The Mormon Church is also more recently been very heavily involved in Mormon-heavy states like Utah in preventing the legalization of medical marijuana. The Mormon Church honestly seems incapable of keeping its nose out of the legal system for all of the lip service that they give to the idea that they do not tell people how they should vote. They kind of tell people how they should vote. But if you want to really delve into the shady side of things, there are whistleblowers who have released entire transcripts and recordings of secret meetings between politicians and Mormon church leaders. You can absolutely find those. Listen to a great Mormon Stories episode about that. I definitely recommend that you look that up. And even if that was not happening... They vows that you take in the Mormon temple, and a lot of this is going to come back to the Mormon temple, right? The vows that you take in the Mormon temple of fealty and obedience, they are not to God. They are specifically to the church. One of the vows that you make is to give everything that you have, everything that you ever will have. And this is not just physical. This is all of your time, your energy, your efforts, everything you own, all of it. All of it you swear to devote to not God, not Jesus, but specifically the church as an organization. These are vows of fealty and obedience to the church as an organization. Every single Mormon politician, public servant, whatever, has sworn these oaths. Right up until... Around 1920, I think, there was an oath of vengeance in the temple. Google it. You will absolutely find it. Literally just Google Mormon oath of vengeance or Mormon temple oath of vengeance. There was for years an oath sworn in the temple by every single Mormon member promising 
that they are going to pray to God every day and teach their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to pray that God would avenge the blood of the prophets on the nation, basically praying for vengeance on the entire United States for the death of Joseph Smith, which is terrifying. The idea that any member of public office who is a Mormon has sworn oaths like this. No, nothing as dramatic as an oath of vengeance anymore, but still definitely an oath of fealty to the church. An oath that is more important and primary to that person than any loyalty they might have to the people that they serve, to the law, to the government. The church comes before everything for an endowed member of the church. Once you are in the club, the club is the most important thing. And that gives the church and church leaders an incredibly intense and personal opinion, unhealthy degree of influence over its members. But surely, I hear you say, surely it cannot be that bad because the church definitely doesn't use its influence for bad things, right? They're technically, legally, a charity. They do good things for people. They have a humanitarian arm. They offer help to people who are hungry and starving. There's a, my own family benefited from the Bishop Storehouse program. We went through a period of time where we were very, very poor and we needed help. And the church helped feed my family. Now we were required to work for that help. We had to volunteer and help out in order to earn that food, which is a frustrating experience considering that my dad was already working full-time as hard as he could, which meant that it was my mom dragging her very young children around to do this work in order for us to eat, which considering that we were homeschooled would have been much better served if we had, I don't know, been pursuing our education but I digress. The church does do some good. Surely the ideas of, you know, theft and personal gain that we see in the Gadianton robbers, does that apply to the Mormon church? Yeah, I'm going to say it does. The Mormon church has billions, billions with a B, billions of dollars in a fund that makes enough money in interest alone, just off of their interest and investments on this one fund the church could support itself in perpetuity, continue to pay for all of its expenses. And yet church leaders still stand up on their pulpit in their great and spacious conference center. That's another Mormon reference that you'll only get if you're a fellow Exmo. The whole great and spacious building thing. These Mormon leaders stand up there and they tell people, in third world countries, in poor rural anywhere, that they need to pay their tithing, pay their 10% to the church before they feed their children. Before you feed your children, before you pay your bills, before you take care of yourself, 10% of your money goes to church. My family would not have been able to get the help that we got from the bishop's storehouse if my parents had not been paying their tithing. Which means people in poor families are giving money to the church in exchange for help, which does not 
allow them to get to a place of stability and independence and instead creates a financial dependency on an organization that will hook them in and keep them in, if at all possible, until they can get them all the way to the temple where they swear an oath of undying loyalty and fealty to give everything that they have and ever will have to the church as an organization. And while the church is telling people who cannot afford to feed their children to give money to the church before they feed their children, they are paying some of their officials very, very comfortable salaries, paying for them to live in very comfortable homes, providing a stipend even to allow them to give gifts to family members and spouses, paying for their children's education. There was a whole expose that was done about this. I'm specifically thinking of a Mormon Stories episode, but there are other people who have covered it as well, about a whistleblower who actually released some financial documents showing what mission presidents, for instance, actually are paid. And it is very comfortable. Like, I don't make that much money. And all the while that the Mormon church is doing this, while they are investing in huge amounts of real estate in Florida, while they are buying malls in Utah, they are telling people who cannot afford to feed their children, pay money to the church first, or you will never get to heaven. In the interest of driving home this point, Mormon utopia in the Book of Mormon itself, let's bring it back to the book, the best book, the most correct book in existence. Mormon utopia is essentially a socialist paradise. It's not actually socialism, according to Mormons, because of Jesus. But in the most righteous time periods that the Nephites enjoy, there is described as being no rich and no poor. Everyone is equal. Everyone has exactly what they need. Everyone takes care of each other. No one suffers because everyone is so good and so giving that everyone just has what they need. It's not a capitalist society. It's not a society of exploitation. It's a society where everyone is given freely whatever they happen to need in that moment. One of the groups of people that's held up as being an example of just sinfulness and horribleness are the Zoramites. There's a Nephite prophet who goes to preach and he comes across a group of people calling themselves the Zoramites. You'll notice that a lot of these people, the way that they're named is just a, a given name like Nephi or Laman, or in this case, Zoram, and they just sort of tack ites onto the end. So these Zoramites are this very, very proud, arrogant group of people who have exploited the poor people among them to make their very, very fancy sanctuaries. And this very, very high tower that they call the Remyumptum, because if there was one thing Joseph Smith was good at, it was naming things. And then they push the poor people out and marginalize them in society. And while never allowing the poor people access to their fancy, gaudy sanctuaries, they would stand on this high tower, on this ramyumptum, running on and on saying this 
rote prayer about how blessed and grateful they are because of how blessed they are and how righteous they are and how much more righteous and how much more blessed they are than anyone else. If you have ever been to a Mormon fast and testimony meeting, this happens once a month in Mormon congregations, everyone is supposed to fast, which means you skip two to three meals and the money that you would have spent on those meals is donated to the church because this is more money going to the church. And this money specifically is supposed to go directly to humanitarian aid. God only knows if it does because the Mormon church is not transparent with its finances. Not like they have anything to hide or anything, but they're not transparent about anything, including their finances. And then these people, which in my experience is well-off, middle-class, white people in business suits and ties and very nice dresses stand up there and they go on about how blessed they are and how grateful they are and how they belong to the only true church and how amazing it is that we have the truth. We have the real truth that other people could only dream of having. Sound familiar? Does it, does it sound a little bit like the Zoramites? Does it? As far as, as we can tell from the very, very limited information whistleblowers have been able to give, the Mormon church gives a teeny tiny fraction of their budget to genuine humanitarian work and, and charitable giving, actually helping people. They build temples plated in 24 karat gold, dripping in opulence and chandeliers and padded cushions and soft, lovely, luscious carpets for them to have their top secret meetings with their secret handshakes while people starve, while people don't have access to clean drinking water. So they can stand up in their great and spacious building on their tower, on the Ramiumpton of the conference center, and talk about how blessed and righteous the church is. So, is the Mormon church evil? I don't know. I don't know that I'm qualified to say. But I do think that by their own standards, in their own book, they're the bad guys. You are the villains of your own story. The Mormons are the Gadianton robbers. They are the Zoramites. There is a rather delightful British Mormon commentator who describes the, the current conflict in the Mormon church. He calls it a civil war. And he describes it as a war between genuine Christians and Pharisees. I think it goes beyond that. I think if there is a civil war in the Mormon church, this conflict that exists between you know, really conservative members and really progressive members, people who are incredibly dogmatic and people who just genuinely want to do good things, ex-Mormons who just genuinely want good things, who critique the church because they care about the people in it, because they care about society as a whole, because they want things to be better. This divide goes beyond mere Pharisees and Christians. If that struggle exists, it is between 
good people and the Zoramites and the Gadianton robbers of the Book of Mormon. Yes, I have tons and tons and tons of criticisms of the Mormon church. They could go on for absolute days, but I don't know that any condemnation that I could levy against the church is as significant as the ways that their own holy book condemns their practices and condemns their policies and condemns the way in which the church runs. I am not even a Christian, but if you are a Mormon and your own Jesus stated that the way you'll know his people is because your leaders will be servants and the greatest among you will be the least, then I am not sure why your leaders are flying around in private jets with private security and cushy, cushy lives while members of your church starve and are told to pay money to the church coffers that does not need them before they feed their children. I don't know that I would describe the Mormon church as evil. Other adjectives I might use are unethical, abusive, definitely manipulative. The Mormon church loves to spin the narrative, loves to keep secrets. Toxic, absolutely. So yeah, maybe a little bit of evil in there. Does the church do good things? Yeah, yeah, it does. But usually the most good I see from the Mormon church is not from the church as an overarching organization. Individual members of the Mormon church can be phenomenal and kind and loving and empathetic and do amazing things for themselves, for each other, for their communities. But the Mormon church itself is rotten from the core, in its most holy of places, in the temple. That is where you will find the worst of the rot and the filth, because that is where you, like me, might have the sudden gut-wrenching realization that you're the Gadianton robbers. And the thing that you were told was the whole, and the thing that you were told your whole life were the good guys, you find out they're actually the bad guys. Be good, my lovelies. I'll talk to you later.